Hey, well, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Dustin. I'm one of the pastors and elders here, and uh, glad you came to join us this week. Um, like Louisa said, we're starting this new series through some of the missionary journeys in, uh, in Acts, which are some fun stories. Um, and, and it reminded me that one of the kinds of stories that I've always really loved as a kid were um, ones that involved travel and exploration of new places, the um, you know, these journeys, these explorations that do something for the very first time, these extreme, in extreme circumstances. Um, I love reading stories like that. And if you know me, you know that one of my favorite stories, uh, adventure exploration stories, is the one of Ernest Shackleton and his endurance expedition to be the first to do a land crossing of Antarctica. And if you know that story, you know that unfortunately their ship got stuck and crushed by ice flows before it sank about five days later. And they were forced to live, um, to camp out on the ice uh, through the Antarctic winter and um, hoping that this big ice flow that they were on would slowly drift 250 miles to the closest island. So, you know, not a great scenario. Um, they survived by eating seals and frozen penguin meat. Um, sorry, kids, if there's anybody in here. I know penguins are cute. Um, but and then finally, they made a, a sleepless five-day open boat journey to Elephant Island as they saw that their big ice flow was not going to uh, hit the island. And it, there's, there's way more than that, obviously. But it's an incredible story, months and months in the ice, um, and what's miraculous about the story is that every man in the party survived somehow. There's a little frostbite here and there, but everybody survived. It's an incredible story. And if you read it or you see some of the documentaries, I, there's just no way that should have happened. But it's stories like that that I love because it shows the human perseverance and endurance, our ability and capability to deal with really hard things. And so that's been something that's been inspiring to me in the last years. Um, something that I think about in those sleepless nights with kids. I channel the spirit of Shackleton. I know it's dramatic. Um, or self-inflicted pain like hood to coast or uh, other challenges. There will be times when Kelly and I are talking about a specific challenge or difficulty we're going through, and one of us will kind of jokingly say, Shackleton, um, as just a reminder that humans are able to persevere incredibly difficult things. Um, so those have been inspiring. One of the more uh, inspiring figures of travel adventure that we don't normally think of like this is the Apostle Paul. This was a man that traveled over 10,000 miles, largely by ship, obviously well before airplanes, and that is a lot of miles to cover in this time. Put him in great danger a number of times. It's really an incredible story. In his own words, this may be a passage that you're familiar with from 2 Corinthians, he kind of summarizes some of the things that he experienced, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
I spent a night and day in the open ocean. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Uh, You know, Paul was the original Shackleton. His adventures were insane. But Paul's story isn't just a story of the capability of humans to persevere and endure difficult circumstances. It's also a story of how the Holy Spirit was working through him and giving him the strength to overcome resistance from all kinds of colorful characters that we'll be introduced to in the book of Acts. From challenging situations, from imprisonment, from beatings, from almost catastrophic sea journeys. In the past six weeks, we spoke, six weeks, we spoke about the Holy Spirit and who he is, what he does, um, what he does in the lives of believers. But now we turn to the story of how the Holy Spirit worked through the early churches in their attempt to share God's love with the whole world. And what it teaches us uh, about the Holy Spirit's activity today. So if you have a Bible, you can flip open to Acts chapter 13. That's where we're going to be starting. Acts chapter 13. At Paul's conversion in chapter 9, the Holy Spirit also gave him his commission. He said, Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So this is the beginning in Acts chapter 13 of this mission. Uh, Let's just read the first three verses in chapter 13 here. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, or the black man, who's from Africa, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas and Saul, One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work for which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Just a quick note here. Do you see what's happening in the early church community? People were functioning out of their spiritual gifts. Teachers were helping the community grow in learning and knowledge. Prophets were leading people out in action. The church was gathering regularly to pray and to fast and to listen to the Holy Spirit together. And it was during one of those times that they received an inspired word about how they were to proceed with their mission. God wanted to send some of their leaders out to spread the love of God with the Gentile world. But what I I want you to hear is that 
they heard the word of the Lord together as a community. As is often where we as individuals hear from God. I found that our impulse is to try to hear from God alone and in some dramatic way. We, um, well, I mean, I've done longer silent retreats. I do those once a year. And I love that time. It's a time of rest. It's a time of um, reading scripture and, and praying with others. And it's incredible. I love it. I've gone on long hikes, and I've, as I've done that, I've been in awe of God's creation and overwhelmed with how incredible it is, everything he's made. But often what I've found, and maybe this is true of you as well, is that God doesn't speak to me like Moses up alone on a mountain somewhere with a loud voice and thunder, but more in the midst of a group of messy people who are seeking and listening to God together. Most often when I've heard something from God, it's been with you, it's been with other people, it's almost never alone. And that's just something to consider. But it's here that Paul and Barnabas received their mission to go on this journey. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Alemus, same dude, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. This is kind of fun because this guy is the only person in the book of Acts that is denoted as a sorcerer. Man, isn't that cool? As a magician. And those words are reflected a bit differently in the ancient world than what we think of as a sorcerer or magician. Uh, it doesn't conjure images of cheap tricks uh, or something magical. It's more associated with spiritual advisors, with people who have a broad knowledge about the spiritual realm, who, who are in touch with that realm. And uh, politicians or governors or leaders would often have someone who could advise them with what their decisions meant in the spiritual realm. They're closer to maybe like our, our astrologers or uh, New Age spiritualists, perhaps. But his Greek name, which he took on himself, this is a name he gave himself, um, means sorcerer. The Hebrew name Bar-Jesus, his given Hebrew name, um, Bar-Jesus was, was in the Hebrew culture to call yourself a son of someone was to designate yourself uh, as that person's follower. So he called himself a follower of Jesus. 
but taught what was contrary to Jesus' own teaching. In other words, Paul called him a false prophet. And that's not too uncommon. But what jumps out at me is that this fraudulent Christian attached himself to a political figure. It's interesting language here. What's the connection between a phony Christ follower and a political leader? Let me just ask this. Why do you think he, quote, would attach himself to a governor? What's that? Okay, for money. It's a good gig. Power. He could influence decisions. Impact more people. Protection. Validation. Yeah, it's good to be associated with people of power. And you wonder, you know, as you read this story, it's it's a really interesting story. It just makes me ask, do false spiritual guides attach themselves to political leaders hoping to have influence or raise their own prominence or power? You know, I know this this all sounds very ancient and not contemporary in any way, but hang in there. I guess I would ask a follow-up to this, is why do you think he was trying to keep the governor from believing? What's that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it would spread even more, this message. Yeah, Lisa. Sure. Yeah, it exposed him uh, as untrue in himself. He wasn't the Jesus follower that his name means. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to think about. There are a lot of questions. Um, But obviously, this change in belief, this shift, would have a big impact on what the governor believed, um, who he looked to for guidance, what decisions he would make. And I think it was because also that he knew this God of Jesus competed with his own God or God's.
Yeah, it's a good question, and it's not real explicit in the passage. Kind of leaves you to wonder, is this guy really, um, is he a true believer in something? Or is he, yeah, is he just a charlatan that used the, the name of Jesus, which I guess in the Roman world wouldn't get you very far yet, or at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a given Hebrew name um, for sure. And uh, you know in the passage clearly um, as Paul well I guess we'll get to that. Yeah. I don't want to ruin it. But <laughs> spoiler alert. So we have this guy pretending, maybe we haven't gotten there yet, to follow Jesus, who is actually trying to keep a political leader from hearing and believing the real truth about Jesus, perhaps because it may change where he leads the country, Um, perhaps he wouldn't be able to influence, exercise that same influence over the governor. I mean... Here's the deal, and and I don't know if you're as cynical about political leaders as I am. I try. I I mean, I try really hard. But in a story like this, I mean, the truth is if political leaders actually repented and believed the good news, that could have massive ramifications for the direction of a country. I mean, with the teaching of Jesus, people may actually have to give up their power and their privilege and position and maybe even wealth and serve people in humility. It's a rub. So, uh, verse 9. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he looked the sorcerer in the eye. Then he said, this sounds like a Facebook post. You son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good, will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. You read that and you think, geez, that's kind of harsh. But Paul isn't just being mean or harsh here. You see this through Acts. There are times when the Holy Spirit fills someone and confronts evil powers. 
even dark forces that influence the government by, government by exposing them for what they are. That's good work. Obviously, Paul doesn't know anything about Alemus or Bar-Jesus or whatever you want to call him. Or what drives him. But the Holy Spirit does. And in this moment, the Holy Spirit has exposed him as a fraud that's bent on deceit. On values that conflict with the values of Jesus. And certainly isn't living up to his name, son of Jesus. Paul says he's more accurately described as son of the devil. You know, I think it can be helpful when Christians confront and expose false Christians who try to wield political influence today by attaching themselves to immoral political leaders. I think that can be really good work. I think to not do so reflects really poorly on the kingdom of God. But if this judgment still seems harsh to you, consider a couple of things. First, his blindness will only be for a time, right? It will go away. But second, and I think more importantly, didn't Paul himself suffer the exact same blindness in Acts 9? And what did that lead him to? Repentance. And the embrace of the gospel, it changed his life. It changed the whole direction of working at cross purposes with Jesus and his kingdom. So it's not a total condemnation, but a hopeful judgment that change is possible. And maybe this will lead the sorcerer to to repent for where he's headed and to embrace Jesus and the good news. You know, I think it's true sometimes of us as well. Sometimes we need to be shown and exposed for who we really are as people to come to terms with our own need for God. It's what David needed when Jonathan was, you know, came to him and told this story and said, you are the man. You know, it's that great moment of confrontation, of, of cutting to the heart of who David really was so he could repent, of breaking down those false images that we have of ourselves that are probably better than they are. It was, it's painful, but it's necessary. Because it's in those times when our false selves come toppling down where we can see ourselves for who the Holy Spirit sees us as. It's the first step of repentance. You know, we don't know what happened to Elemus in the long run, but this was an opportunity for him to seek the true God. You know, those who claim to be Christ followers but teach contrary to Christ and his values have a very specific word that's applied to them in the New Testament. They're called antichrists. Not like a, not antichrist, like some, you know, dude that will come in the future, but it's a plural word. Antichrist. Those who teach contrary to what Jesus teaches. In the New Testament, those are called antichrists. Those who work against the purposes of God. And people who claim to be Christ followers but teach what is contrary today belong in the same category. And should be exposed as such to not deceive people more in following a false path. 
there, one of the things that becomes clear really quickly in Acts is that there is no advancement of the, the gospel without opposition, without resistance. There are people and systems and structures and spirits that are grasping for power that do not want people to hear the message of God's love for them. The message of Jesus that does not want people to respond to the message of Jesus and to follow him. And I know that in our age we think we're beyond spirits and such, you know, in this materialistic, very precise scientific age. But it's fascinating in light of that to see the increased popularity of things like astrology and witchcraft and tarot cards. You know, these people seem to be smarter than we are as Christians. They get that there's a spiritual realm that matters and that we interact with whether we know it or not. The New Testament is obviously very strong on that point as well. And, you know, you can think it's outdated or not, but you can see the result of a, a system that's been corrupted by evil, a system that's, that's resistant to the message of Jesus. And to reject, to reject that and not recognize that is to open ourselves up to be compromised easily for evil and not even realize it. It's kind of like that classic quote, um, you know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And that's not, that didn't originate with Kevin Spacey uh, in whatever movie that was. But Charles Baudelaire wrote that, um, who followed that sentence, we usually don't get to the second part of that, by saying another, perhaps equally fatal, is to make them fancy that he is obliged to stand quietly by and not to meddle with them. In other words, passivity to the powers that be is to unknowingly contribute to evil and injustice and perhaps not even realize it. And unfortunately... There are far too many Christians participating with and encouraging evil today in their passivity by just standing back and not meddling with it. But in regard to the resistance and opposition that we face as Christ followers, we shouldn't be discouraged by opposition to the church or to God's mission in the world or to our participation in it. Sometimes we falsely believe that opposition means God is not in it. But many times that opposition or resistance actually means that God is in it. Because it's pushing up against these evil powers that want to resist Christ's message. Louisa and I were talking this morning and realized that in following God faithfully... Or in times with you, when you're doing God's will, you may not get the result that you expect or desire. But that doesn't mean that God is not in it or doesn't want you to do it. I mean, when you look at the life of Paul, he faithfully followed Jesus. He responded to God's call to do exactly what God told him. 
And this is a guy who had the crap beaten out of him, who was shipwrecked. On and on and on, it would have been really easy for Paul to say in, in light of his circumstances, you know, I don't think God is in this. It, it's so weird, but and maybe somebody on the outside would look at that and think, dude, you're obviously not doing what God wants. He would not do this. He would be blessing you if you were doing what God wanted to do. When we do something right that really aligns with Christ's kingdom, there will be resistance. It's just the reality. Because the world is opposed to Christ's way. You can sense that resistance in all kinds of ways. When people resist the word of God, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's another spirit. When people resist that Jesus is Lord, that's not the Holy Spirit, folks. That's another spirit. When people excuse evil and exploitative behavior from politicians because they're in their own political party, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's another spirit. When people say, I disagree with Jesus that we should not forgive our enemies, that is not the Holy Spirit. That comes from another place. Don't compromise Christ's values to eliminate discomfort and conflict with the world that resists Christ's message. That's compromise, that's weak. Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. And what's interesting is three verses down, he says, but I will send the advocate, the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. He will testify about me. The Holy Spirit is the living presence of truth inside of us. We, we can't not rebel against these powers that exist. And also, it's encouraging to me because the Holy Spirit is why we don't need to fear or to cower or to compromise or to shrink back from the love of Jesus. Because convincing people, defending ourselves, it's not our work. That's one of the hardest things I've had to learn as a, uh, as a Christian is the results aren't up to me. How things turn out, I, I can't deal with any of that at all. I can live faithfully following Jesus, following the Holy Spirit's voice together in community, but the results are out of my hands. I, I can't worry about that. Sometimes they're really encouraging and positive and what I want, sometimes they're not. Sometimes it feels like a slow death. But obviously, there's a positive part of the story as well. I hope I haven't been too negative today. Because it's not just about resistance, but also about a responsiveness. While we don't know if Elena's ever responded positively to the gospel, we're not told. Surprisingly, the governor does. Not the one who is in tune with the spiritual realm. He resists it. And then this lousy politician, sorry, my cynicism again, responds to the gospel. You don't usually see that. While 
throughout the book of Acts, Luke has no problem pointing out when officials do the wrong thing for the wrong reason. He confronts political figures a lot in Rome. But he's also not prejudiced against all politicians. This is hard for me. Or all Romans as if they're automatically bad. Or automatically bad for God's people. In fact, sometimes they're the ones that respond to the gospel. And that's something I was reminded of this week, is that it is possible for politicians to authentically have an encounter with Jesus that changes their lives. Maybe that seems obvious to some of you. But what it tells us is that while we continue to confront unjust and evil behavior from our leaders... No one's beyond hope of that genuine encounter with Christ. Not even politicians. Not even us. In this story, Luke writes, when the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished by the teaching of the Lord. Both in its power as he saw displayed here, and its content. Just as convincing as the truth of Jesus' teaching is the result that he brings in a person's life. Right? Words and deeds. Words and transformation. That's what convinced him, what made him realize the truth of Jesus' way. And so that's what I want to encourage you with today, Evergreen. I want to encourage you. I think the scriptures encourage us today to continue to live faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit. Persevere. And maybe some of you really need to hear this today. Persevere even in the midst of a world that is increasingly hostile to Christ and his way. Don't compromise your integrity. Faithfully follow, continue to follow the values of the kingdom of Jesus rather than getting caught up in the values of the world and its broken systems. Because as you do, what's exciting is that when people see the power and the truth of how we're living, of how Christ is working through us, and what it is that we're proclaiming about Jesus, there will be people who respond in astonishment of this way of Jesus and will be compelled and captivated by it and want to join in with the kingdom of God. That's the good news. And we're all invited to be a part of that as we continue to live faithfully together as a community. In a second, BD is going to come up and invite us to communion. Um, But before that, I just want to pray and give you an opportunity um, as you pray quietly just to respond to what it is that God may be saying to you today, how he may have challenged you, how he may have encouraged you, what he may be saying to you in your own life, and how you live in the midst of this, uh, this world. So let's just take a minute and be silent, and then I will pray for us, and then Beattie will come and invite us. Lord, um, your word 
truly is something that cuts into us. I've never read a passage that didn't challenge me or make me angry, challenge my allegiances or loyalties to things that aren't you, but also that haven't left me encouraged and inspired. Lord, as, as we've come to discuss this passage and as I've studied this week, it has been both of those. And Lord, I pray for all of us at Evergreen that this will be a challenge and encouragement to continue to be faithful in the midst of resistance, in the midst of untrue messages and pressures uh, from all kinds of places for all kinds of reasons. It's a confusing time. And we need your guidance. Lord, help us to seek that in community together as we have grace with each other, as we forgive one another, as we live out faithfully this life that you have taught us to live, as challenging as that can be. Give us your power, Holy Spirit. May people see this power lived out among us at Evergreen as us and individuals in our neighborhoods. And may we see the fruit of that. God, would you open your heart to people joining in with us in your kingdom? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.